The CFOs that get it, get it. The CFOs that don't, don't. Let's talk about the CFO, the Chief Financial Officer. There are two kinds of CFOs. One who's struggling to keep up, spreadsheets everywhere, manual processes. It takes weeks to close the books. The other kind is on top of their game. Automated reports, inventory, commerce, and HR flow into the financial model seamlessly. NetSuite is everything you need to grow all in one place. That's why NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system used by over 28,000 growing businesses. 93% of businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Head to netsuite.com slash c-suite for a special one-of-a-kind financing offer. That's netsuite.com slash c-suite. netsuite.com slash c-suite. This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. However tough it is for you to find, recruit, train, organize new people into your organization, I promise you that you're not dealing with the toughest people. Who deals with the toughest people? I've got a guy on the line right now, ready to go, that deals with the absolute toughest recruits and candidates, probably of anybody I've ever dealt with. Scott Love, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joel. I'm excited to be here. Hey, man. So who are these most tough candidates and recruits? Who are the people that fall into that bucket? Well, I'm lucky enough to talk to lawyers all day. I recruit partner-level attorneys (laughs) just for law firms. That's right. And and I just recruit lawyers to go to other law firms, and I'm only dealing with partners and only partners that are successful that have what's known as a portable book of business that will go to another firm only in New York and D.C. So it's a very narrow, 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 narrow niche. And these are, uh, it's a risk-averse pool of people and they're guarded and they're untrusting and they've got a fear of change. And it's my job to get them to bring the walls down, trust me, and take my advice when I say, go talk to my client and take a meeting, see if that, see if it's going to work out for you. So, uh, and I would imagine these people, beside all the other things you just said about them, there probably is a little bit of ego involved. A little bit, a wee bit of ego. And I've learned how to manage that. And it, uh, it's working well. So the first thing uh, that I want to know is, do these people feel like uh, they need your help or do they feel like uh, they should be able to do this by themselves? Because a, a lot of the problems that uh, companies have is that they feel like they can do stuff by themselves when they really should be engaging professional people. Right. And I think there's two avenues that we can take your question. And one avenue is the person himself or herself, the partner that wants to move. They might say, well, I know somebody, let, I, let me call them and I'll tell them you could do that. However, if the firm goes silent, you're not going to know what's going on besides the people that make the decisions. I've had drinks with them. I've had meals with them. And I know what the strategy is. And I can articulate how your expertise uh, fits squarely in their strategy. And I can resolve any sort of impasses. But anyway, so I kind of work as a broker in many times. Uh, in many times. So on the, on the organization side, when a company or a firm or any professional services type firm is looking to recruit people, they might think they can go forth and find people within their warm circle of influence to recruit them. However, you're only going to get so much credibility when you say, come join my team. Well, of course you think your team is great. It's your team. 
And I think when you deal with a third-party recruiter, a headhunter, so to speak, that's someone that can say, I know the market, I know my niche, and this is what's unique about this opportunity and getting people like that to sell your opportunity. It's expensive, but it is the most effective way uh, to get that ROI in terms of finding the very best talent. Well, the other other thing is that uh, when you're going to your network, you have a very limited reach. You know, it's like uh, if you got a used car, you don't know, you don't know anybody who wants to buy a used car. I mean, I mean, I don't know anybody, I don't know anybody, but if you're in the car business, all you know, is people that, that want used cars. I mean, it's all, you know, so, I mean, if you specialize in something, so you specialize in knowing attorneys, are you, are you a retained attorney placement guy or, or who do you represent? What side do you work on? Yeah, I've done it both ways before. I've got a few firms that have me on retainer where they do have a critical, strategic, important need to fill. Sometimes I'll do that. I've done mergers. I've worked on law firm mergers on a retainer basis. But I find within my own business, I make more placements when I'm working on a contingency basis. And that's just unique to my niche because in many ways, I'm like a sports agent where here's an example. I've got an IP partner with a good book of business in New York that is working with me. And I'm presenting him to, let's say, uh, five different firms. He'll probably have four meetings and two offers. And so the firm that hires a candidate, they pay the fee. So technically, I'm representing that firm that hires a candidate. But in many ways, it's almost a dual representation. Uh, But the thing I'm looking for is the fit. What's the fit that's going to work well for everybody? And when it works out, it's really exciting. Everybody's happy. So, I mean, I want to understand the business, but, but, you know, really what we want to kind of get to is how you manage the egos, the bringing people in, getting them to say yes. I mean, you know, what's the sales cycle? The yeah, process? yeah. I mean, kind of go through a few of those things. I mean, those are things that really fascinate me is first, how do you get the ego under control of some of these guys right. that are successful, uh, big time guys that are calling the shots everywhere they go? You know, let me answer that question, but I wanted to comment on what you said first. I'll kind of give some tips and ideas on things that I've learned by doing this, and I've been doing this for some time, and I'm going to convey that in a way that anybody listening that's a manager in any type of corporation or organization can benefit from. So I'll kind of make it a little bit more generic so it'll benefit your listenership. But in answer to your, your most recent question, the ego, I think you've got to have a bit of gravitas and grace. You've got to have a little bit of swagger in your step when you're selling to a sophisticated market because they don't want to deal with people that uh, aren't the number one in the world. They really don't. They want to deal with people that are number one in the world. But you've also got to have this honest humility. You have to look at yourself as not being better than other people. And years ago, and you know this, I used to have a training company. It's a sales training company for people in the recruiting industry that I sold about three years ago. And one of the things I would teach people was that confidence and humility can peacefully coexist. You want to be confident to the point that you don't go beyond the line of arrogance. And that's a healthy place to be, especially when you're dealing with other confident people. But you don't want to think of yourself as being better than anyone. You want to treat that Uber driver driver in that cabbie as an equal. You want to treat the chairman of an international organization as a peer. And when you treat people as an equal, not yes, sir, yes, ma'am, not Mr. Smith, it's Bob. You want to call them by their first names, treat them as an equal. They're going to respond to you. And then you have the right to, to give them pushback. I was joking. Someone said, well, how are you able to get these partners to take your advice? And I said, well, I just kind of talk down to them a little. You know, they, they just know <laughs> that, that I see them as someone that we're an equal. I don't care how many fancy degrees you have. You're somebody that I can help. And my thought model is when I'm talking to people is 
you're, you're so lucky to be getting my call because of what I can do for you. Because I know my value. I know that I can solve some pretty big problems for people. Let's focus on oh, that for ahead. a second. Let's focus on that for yeah, a second know. because that kind of posturing is really about yeah. uh, sales success no matter what you're selling. I mean, you're selling. That's right. You know, I mean, I love the sports agent concept because that's really what you're doing. And by the way, yeah. to me, the biggest reason these guys need you is because a third party can represent you uh, better than they can represent themselves. In fact, I think that attorneys say that uh, any attorney who represents himself has a fool for a client. Isn't that what they say? Right, right. That's right. That's so, right. So in a certain way, you know, you ought to say that to him once in a while, you know, fine, go out and handle it yourself, but you, you know what the outcome is going to be. Uh, because Absolutely they don't right. know the market. Uh, they may be the best negotiator, but you know, doctors don't operate on their family members. Attorneys don't represent, uh, you know, themselves or maybe family members because there's just that conflict that occurs. So let's talk about that posturing. So keep going because it's really sure. cool what you're saying. Yeah, you bet. I think I think there's three parts of that. One of them is knowing that you have the credibility and the expertise and you want to replay past successes. And in that current scenario that you're in, you want to know that you can solve that person's problem and you want to pre-play. So anytime I'm on a call with someone like, so for example, I have to follow up with some pretty sophisticated people today. I'm actually going to write down in bullet point format, what are my goals in this call? I want to talk to my candidate about this. I'm going to talk about this and talk about this. I'm going to replay that in my mind. And then third, I think you need to purify your intention to where it doesn't serve you. It only serves the other person that you're dealing with. And what's interesting about the recruiting business is that I call it a derivative success formula business, where I don't make a dime unless I create a mutual satisfaction of needs between two different people. So my own intrinsic need, I want to make a placement. I want to collect fees. That doesn't happen unless I make a good fit. So I'm always focusing on the other person and I'll ask them questions such as what's important to you? What's the criteria that you would base your decision on if I had your ideal situation and I was going to call you and tell you about that? What would it look like? What would it sound like to you? So I always try to take my own inherent ego and and sense of, of drive, which is making placements and collecting fees. I put that off to the side where the only thing that counts is them doing what's in their best interest. And I try to align that with my client's goals also. And that's how you do it. You know, what I've always thought is hard about your business, you know, listen, because I run a hedge fund and I've been involved in this, I deal with a lot of brokers, real estate brokers and other kinds of brokers. And, you know, listen, it's well understood that uh, there's the buyer, there's the seller, and then there's the deal. So every deal has three sides to it. You know, right. and when you're brokering a piece of real estate, for example, because you're talking about being a broker, which which you are, you try to get the two parties to come together. But the real yeah. estate, you know, is just kind of indifferent about it. The, but here's the thing. In your business, the commodity that you're brokering has an opinion <laughs> about what's yeah. going to happen. Yeah. And, and right. so my that product, adds a tremendous can, layer of complexity. <laughs> that's right. That's right. My product can have a bad attitude. <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, you know, listen, my, my product can be ugly, but we can fix that with a yeah. coat of paint. Your product can really be problematic. That's correct. And you have to, I, I always joke and say that my entire life, Joel, it's a Sandman dollar. I can spend so much time on a deal and it's a nice, pretty pattern. Just like the Buddhist monks will spend weeks creating this beautiful design out of sand and they'll sweep it away and wash the sand down the river to symbolize how everything is futile, everything is fleeting. Don't get too attached to that deal. And so there's a lot of emotion management that goes on in my business, a lot of detachment, where I've got, I've got two significant deals. One of them is a group lift out, the other one's a firm merger. 
It'd be great if they happen, but you know what? If they don't, that's awesome. It, it, it doesn't matter if, if I win or lose. What matters is, am I focusing on the, you know, at least for my business, the daily metrics that I have to focus on? And did I learn something? Uh, a friend of mine was a professional poker player. And I asked him, I said, what's your attitude when you play cards? Do you set goals? And he said, I only care about two things, making correct decisions and learning something. Because I have no control over the flow of the cards, but I do have control over my, over my decisions and I have control over how I respond to adversity. So that's a big part of it, Joel. Wow. That's pretty interesting. So uh, how long have you been doing this? This been doing for a long time? Oh, I've been doing search, you mean? Like since 1995, July. Oh, so, so you've been doing this, that's more than 20 years. I mean, that's that's almost 25. Oh, yeah. That's a long time. So you've been around the block. You've seen all different kinds of things. What, yep. kind, of, yeah. uh, what kind of people have you seen? What kind of things have you dealt with in your career? I, I, in my old niche, I started doing recruiting in a different niche. It was commercial building contractors, companies like Turner Construction, Hensel Phelps, uh, the Hunt Construction Group, large mechanical uh, contractors, the Scott Company in California was a client of mine at one time, the uh, Sasco Electric, MYR Group, you know, companies like that, where I was dealing with mid to senior level executives. And uh, a lot of those were privately owned companies where I was dealing with the founder that didn't have a college degree that worked his way up, very sophisticated negotiators, very good business people. I got into legal recruiting about nine years ago. I used to have a training company, like I mentioned. I started that in 2002 and sold it three years ago. And I would consult to a lot of the legal recruiting firms. And economically, I saw the types of deals that they were working on. And I thought, that looks interesting. I did that. And I love it. Every day I go to bed, I'm excited about the next day. Some days are better than others. But all I care about is my two metrics that I focus on every single day. If I can hit those, you know, so I focus on left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. I don't care about the game. If I'm going to win, I just focus on each shot that's in front of me. It's just like when you play golf. The only thing that counts in life at that point in time is the shot that you have right there in front of you. That's an interesting uh, approach. So it's it's kind of a you have to have a little faith that if you know if you put one foot in front of the other, that after a while you're going to get where you're going. Yeah, you're right. You got to have the goods. You got to have the resources. You got to have the right sort of communication skills. Uh, you have to have a bit of the confidence. And if you don't have the confidence, you can kind of pretend. Like when I got into this, I just would act as if I was a big deal, right? I wasn't a big deal. I'd act as if. And I saw people would respond to me as if I was a big deal. And I kind of borrow from that. I'd say, well, they treat me like I'm a big deal. I guess I'm a big deal. Then you become a big deal. You sort of work it that way. Yeah. You know, <laughs> there's just, there's so much um, overlap, you know, with the whole sales cycle and, and selling and, you know, what you're selling, you're selling a really difficult product. I mean, representing yeah. A, yeah. a human being is a very difficult sale. But the posturing, the positioning, the, the the whole thing is is identical to every other kind of sale. Now, uh, yeah. whether it's a fit or not, that that may or may not. You know, both both sides have an opinion. Uh, whereas when you're buying a commodity, only one side really has an opinion. But that's right. That's a funny part. But the generality here is just so spectacular. I mean, I, I love talking about sales. To me, sales is everything. It's it's the, the great skill that all of us really should have if we can, but obviously you've developed it to a very high level. Yeah, thank you. And I think it's applicable to other people that are in positions of hiring that they're looking to recruit. And I can kind of talk about that also, give some advice to people listening today. What's the inside track into recruiting your talent? How do you sell the opportunity to them? I can kind of talk about that if you want. Well, let's uh, let's talk about it. Go ahead, go ahead and share that. 
Yeah. So I would, I would, I would ask the people that are listening, think of the ideal candidate. Let's suppose that person, he or she is sitting in front of you and here is your chance. And now is your chance to pitch your job to them. What do you say? And the first thing I'd recommend is ask them questions, questions such as what's important to you if you're going to make another move with your current situation, what's keeping you from being completely fulfilled. Ideally, if there are two or three things that would need to change, it would make you world perfect. What would that be? And it really, it's that simple, Joel. You start with that uh, by asking questions of people. I believe that brings the walls down. People can trust you. I feel that when we have people that ask questions of us that show a sincere interest, I think that is a bonding agent. I think we tend to bond with people that ask those kinds of questions because, hey, it's about our favorite subject, right? It's about ourselves. And then you proceed to, to present it based on what's, what's important to your prospect. It also creates dialogue. And dialogue yeah. is is healthy for people, you know, at, at every level. And, and that's the way you find out that it's a fit or not fit pretty fast. Because one of the things for you, doesn't the candidate have to stick for a while before you get your money? Yeah. In most companies, there's usually a guarantee period that can range from 30 to 90 days. In my world, it's a year, as long as a year at some point. So I'm definitely so- in it for the long term. So let's talk about what kinds of things, you know, do you do or do you see the best companies do? Because this is all about the inside track. The inside track is the best, smartest, fastest way to get something done that's going to be successful. So what's right. the inside track on, on making somebody a successful recruit, on getting them to stick around for a long time, be happy where they are and, uh, you know, in the whole thing? I mean, what are, what are some of the things that the best companies are doing? That's a great question, Joel. And keep in mind, my perspective is that since 1995, I've had literally tens of thousands of conversations with professionals about why are, are they open to other things? And also, why would they not want to leave their company? So a lot of times I talk to people and they say, I'm happy here. I'm never going to leave. And I'm curious and I'll ask them why that is. This is the, this is the common theme, Joel. This is the inside track. It's all because of the relationship with the manager one level up. That's what it is. It's that immediate superior. It's that executive relationship, assuming there's one, maybe two people between them. It's that personal connection. And it's that leadership. It's that leadership that mid-level, junior-level, peer-level people that they display to others where everybody has a choice. They have a choice in how they're going to respond to a directive. And think of it like this. There's an invisible scale, a scale of 1 to 10 10 meaning they're going to put their heart and their soul in how they execute and how they take action on that directive. And if it's a high quality leader, they're going to give a 10. They're going to go to the wall for that person. If it's someone that doesn't have good leadership skills, even if he's right, people are probably going to sabotage it because they don't care about that ball. It's just just the funniest thing that some people just don't get leadership. They just don't get how to get other people to follow them. You know, I know somebody owns a company and he just doesn't understand why people don't respect him. You know, now he gives them bonuses, but instead of, you know, making them feel like a million dollars, he throws it at them like they don't even deserve it, but he has to give it to them just because it's kind of like customary. And and yeah. he doesn't get that that is really an off-putting way to handle things. You know, some people just don't get it. And it's really a shame that they do not. You're absolutely right. I think, I think a lot of it has to do with self-awareness. This goes back to their self-image. Do they have a high sense of self-esteem or are they insecure and they view the world as a threat and they've got to protect themselves? I think it really goes back to that. I do, I do too. I mean, I think that a lot, a lot of it is about that. So if it is about that, you know, can leadership really be taught 
you know, some of the techniques can be taught, but is it really more of an innate thing? Do you find that some people are just more innate about it than others? I don't think it has to do with personality, but I think the, I wouldn't say it can be taught, it can be learned. Not everybody's willing to learn this. And I don't know if you knew this, Joel, but back when I was a naval officer, after I finished my sea tour, I was uh, a leadership trainer. I taught leadership at the world's largest naval base in Norfolk, Virginia. So that was when I was at the season's age of 24 as a, uh, <laughs> as a lieutenant, junior grade. Here I was teaching thousands of military officers, senior enlisted and civil service workers, some progressive leadership concepts. And I think not everybody's ready to hear those lessons. I think it has a lot to do with, are they ready to apply those? Uh, sometimes when things get bad enough, they realize they have to change. When you start to see that you've lost all your friends, that nobody wants to work for you, that your evaluations continue to be stating that you're uh, toxic, <laughs> then, then at some point, hopefully you'll make the decision to where I need to take my ego, set it off to the side, and uh, focus on other people. So, you know, listen, I mean, law firms, by and large, are not giant companies. I mean, even the largest law firms in the country only have a couple thousand partners, right? I mean, they're, they're right. not that large. Yeah, I guess relatively speaking. But yeah, I've got clients with 2,000 attorneys. I've got some that the smaller ones, maybe 250 attorneys. You know, so, so, it, so it's all perspective. I, right. So, you know, I mean, I mean, talk compared to, uh, you know, some of the larger companies in our country, uh, you know, where they have 25, 50, 100,000 people working there or more, uh, you know, sure. law firms are relatively small. Right. And even even compared to the large accounting firms where they require armies of young people to do voluminous work, that's the environment where I originally came from. At that's right. House years ago. But so the, the management style, you know, is, is very different in a smaller company than it would be in a much larger Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 environment. So, I mean, are, are these attorneys being given good training about how to how to handle the things that they need, how to be. Uh, how to be self-aware, how to have good leadership, how to have, have good, uh, you know, monetary policy skills. I mean, are they learning these kinds of things? Where Where is that happening? No, I don't think so. Uh, there are some firms that do have a culture of leadership, but what's interesting, like I mentioned, is that what's the number one solution to hiring and attracting and increasing retention is leadership, yet I don't think most law firms, or I know most law firms don't pay a lot of attention to that. And they would. They would solve so many of their problems. They would solve the internal bickering, the political political issues internally. They'd solve a lot of retention issues if they could put people in positions of leadership. Or even if they would just train, if they would hire. And I'm not a leadership trainer, but if they would invest resources to train their uh, partners and their leaders how to lead. And many times it's just having a book club once a week. And bring people together to have a facilitated discussion on a book club on leadership. It's just the awareness. It's just the intention of wanting to become a better leader and taking small action steps to it. Sometimes that's just enough. Yeah, that's a pretty interesting observation that they don't do enough to provide training to their people to work with their guys because they need it. I mean, you know, being a, being a trained as an attorney and being trained as a business person, they're, they're not related. And running an organization, which is part of the business function, uh, those are not related to the law, the law skills. Right. By the way, doctors, the same thing. They didn't get those skills either. And, and they right. have to learn those skills. And if they don't have them, they suffer. I, I remember I was at a presentation where the, the dean of the Georgetown Law School was giving a talk. And I spoke up during the Q&A. And I told him, I said, I do partner-level recruiting for law firms. And a success, the success of a partner-level attorney is based on two things. 
how big is their book of business and how effective are they in dealing with others, uh, leadership. Yet those are two areas that just are not taught within traditional law schools. And he told me, he said that they have business tracks now that they offer related to those things. So I think some firms or some schools are starting to see that that's opportunity. But I, I, so, I know that there's other consultants that I talk to within legal that do spend time trying to uh, trying to to sing that song, so to speak. What you learn in law school, accounting school, you know, your your basic stuff is it's about the first 15 years of your career. It's all the technical stuff. But after about 10 or 15 years, my experience is that professional people kind of max out there. You know, there's not that much more to learn. I mean, they they may learn a little nook or cranny here, but by and large, they're kind of at the level that they're going to be professionally. And then everything after that, so from the time you're about 40 years old and beyond, it's all about dealing with people. And success in business becomes about dealing with people. It's not about reading books. And now there's one or two people that are highly technical that are better than everybody else. And in fact, they're so good Mm -hmm. that it doesn't matter that they can't talk to other people. Uh, There's a number of Pricewaterhouse. There was a special oil and gas guy, uh, if you had that. There was a special solar guy, one particular guy in the country that was like so great. And if he, and he just lived in a closet and it didn't really matter if he had any personality because he was the national expert on this topic. But for, <laughs> right, but for everybody right, else, right. They, they have to be able to go get business. They have to be able to get along with people, right? Right, that's right. And that's, that's a big part of that. And, and there are some firms that I think understand the culture of leadership. They might not articulate it in those words. And they'll hire people that do fit in, their, in that culture. So I don't want to say that all law firms don't have that understanding. I just think that there should be some structured training development around that topic. I think that uh, there's, if there's any leadership consultants out there, I would think that there's a lot of opportunity in that, uh, in that sector. Yeah, I would, I would think so too. I would, I would imagine people are probably kind of afraid of working with attorneys because attorneys are, you know, they're not, uh, they're not the easiest people to deal with. And I think, you know, I they, think, yeah, I, I think so, they're just like everybody else. They're just a little bit more guarded and, and I found my whole philosophy is that I'm not in the business of building relationship. I'm in the business of solving problems. And if I can show someone that I can solve their problem, then I've earned the right to build that relationship. And that's just what I've done to earn the trust. I let them know that the only thing that counts is what's in your best interest, and that's what I'm committed to. And once they understand that, then it's, it's a lot easier to sell to them. Listen, you know, I'm, I'm always of the opinion that business in general is, is very simple, and that is... It's about solving people's problems and people pay to make those problems go away. That's it. It's that yep. simple. You got a problem, uh, then somebody knows how to make that problem go away. I'm going to give you a little money to make my problem go away. That's right. That's right. It's that simple. So if you're the person that can do that, uh, all the better. So let's talk a little bit about how you got in this business. Did you always work with attorneys or, or did you move to them after a while? No. So, so like I mentioned, I worked in construction. And then in 2002, I started my training company because I really enjoyed speaking. And in 2003 is when I joined National Speakers Association. And so all of my speaking was in that vertical niche. I'd done some gigs outside of that, or excuse me, speaking engagements outside of that. But nearly everything was just within that vertical of the recruiting and staffing industry. And so I built that up. That was my business. And over 4,500 recruiting and staffing companies from over 37 countries invested in my offerings. Back when I had tapes, I had tapes, VHS, CDs, DVDs, online learning, all that. And I got to the point where I really liked recruiting more than running a training company. But in 2010, 
I, that's when I decided that I wanted to start pursuing recruiting and I, I could work in any industry. I thought, you know, I can, I could go back to my old niche. I wasn't really in love with it. I could do anything. I knew a lot of legal recruiters I was mentoring and consulting to. And I thought that's what I'm going to do. So I took action, started up a business, uh, went forth, made a lot of mistakes in the first two years, and then really kind of found my groove in my third year. And, uh, it's been good. You know, it's a good business, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of drama. And like I mentioned, every single day, it's like a sand mandala. You, you don't know what's going to fall apart that you've been working on for a long time. Let's, let's try to generalize a couple more of these principles. You know, I mean, how do, how do people who are executives in corporate organizations, not attorneys, how do they find the best talent? How do they bring in the best talent? How do they identify exactly what they need? One thing about attorneys for sure they, when they give you an order or they say, this is what we want, they're not kind of floating around. They, they must know exactly what they, we want a securities attorney that does corporate this, this size company has mm-hmm. been court this many times. I mean, they must know exactly what they want. How do, how do corporate type people bring that level of specificity and would that be helpful for them? Well, I think that they should be specific. I think they have to look at two different ways. One way is a strategic approach where these are the people that we want to get these are the types of positions we must build and also an opportunistic. If we see someone that could be a fit in this area, we need to be open to that. So I think a company or any organization needs to have that category of strategic and opportunistic. And in terms of kind of answering the question you mentioned, how do they go find these people, get them to be interested in their company? You could look at different avenues. One avenue is finding the low-hanging fruit, those people that are actively looking through various job boards, things like that, things that people already know about. And and a good internal recruiting staff will help with that. But the other way is finding the very best talent, and usually that's through a third-party recruiting firm or staffing agency, where people like me, we get the inside scoop and the inside track into what someone's intrinsic motivations are. We share that with our clients. That makes it a much easier, smoother process. Uh, And I think to answer your question of, how can they get them interested in their company? It's all about finding out what matters to each person individually. Find out what their intrinsic motivations are and sell to that. It's really that simple. Let me ask you your opinion about something. This, this is um, kind of a perception thing. In the last 20 years, the internet has exploded, you know, as we all know. And, and there's been all these matchmaking services. So, you know, you got for dating, which is one thing, but you got for, for, uh, for recruitment. So you got all these different websites for to help people get jobs. Has that really made it better for companies to find people and for people to get jobs? Or has it actually made it more valuable to have a guy like you helping them? Well, it's kind of like this. Remember in the day when you would book your travel with a travel agent? You would book sure. your travel with a travel agent. Sure. And then, then the internet came up And then what happened to all the travel agents? Well, they had to either go out of business or adapt. And they would develop specialties such as travel to Israel or church groups or alumni groups. They found a specialized area. You can still order your flight over the web, but if there was a specialized need, you go through a specialist. I'd also give you the example of people that sell pre-need funeral services. Who wants to think of their funeral? But if they're one-on-one with somebody that sells pre-need cemetery and cremation and funeral services, they're going to buy because they have an individual that's taking them through uh, an emotionally charged conversation. People like me, third-party recruiters, were able to engage people that not necessarily are looking and really tap into what are their career goals and find out how would our clients' strategy 
in alignment with their goals. How can we help that candidate go to a place in their career a lot faster and a lot easier? So even though the marketplace has become crowded and noisy, people like me are specialists. Many times recruiters will have a network where they know exactly who to call. I had a client that called, they gave me an E last week. I, I said, I know four people that would fit that perfectly. Now they might say, well, you're just going to make four phone calls, but they don't know all the other work that goes into it. I mean, they, yeah. they certainly appreciate that. Uh, so I would say, even though it's crowded, specialists that know exactly who those top performers are, they're worth their weight in gold. Yeah. You know, in a funny way, what it seems to me is that, you know, these uh, monster.com or whatever these, I, I don't I don't know what these different services are. I've seen some of these in the past, but, mm-hmm. you know, if they used to run a newspaper ad, they'd get 10 people would apply and they would pick the one they want. But now you get hundreds of these things on your email or in your fax machine or wherever they, they arrive. And, and now they have to go through hundreds of different things. And, and it's made it harder for candidates. It's made it harder for, it, in other words, the process has gotten so easy that it's actually gotten harder. And so I would imagine right. that at the lower tier, uh, you know, they have to deal with that kind of uh, process, but that really makes you more valuable uh, on the upper tier. I mean, that's just what it yeah. seems like to me. And, and you're absolutely right, Joel. And I, and I don't think that's ever going to go away just because of the highly specialized focus that people like me have, not just me and legal, but all the recruiting firms that work in a very narrow niche. And uh, there's, it, it ebbs and it flows. Sometimes some niches, they, they change, you have to adapt. But when it comes to talent, there's no replacement for one-on-one relationships. There's no substitute for that. So let's get ready to wind down. Give us your very best tip for finding the best candidates for not just lawyers, but for all kinds of companies. What's the best tip that you have for finding great candidates? I'll tell you this. Tip number one is find a good recruiting firm that is a specialist within your industry niche and your geographic region. You're going to have to budget for that. It's going to be expensive. But it's kind of like, okay, I don't need to fix my car. I'll kind of get it halfway fixed. And eventually, you got to get the whole thing fixed anyways. And it costs you four times more than if you did it, did it right the first time. So I would say, number one, properly budget for a professional that is a specialized expert within your area. Number two, if that doesn't work for you, if, if, if that's out of your budget, make a list of everybody that you know that has access to those people. And tip number three, come up with a unique narrative that answers this question. What can you say about your organization that nobody that's in the same business as you can say about theirs? How are you truly distinct? And then convey that down to the personal and the emotional level. How does that distinction improve the condition and the lives of those people you'll hire on a very personal and emotional level? When you understand that, now you've got something you can really talk about when you're interviewing your next potential great candidate. Interesting. And now give us your best tip, the inside track on successfully bringing in and and making a a new person feel comfortable and feel good about your organization so they can be successful. What's the best way to get a new person to be successful in your organization? Yeah, I would say to take your own self-interest and put them off to the side and truly empathize with that person. What is it that he or she wants in his or her career? And what is it that they truly are looking for? And how can your company solve that problem? How can it fit in alignment with what they're intrinsic motivations are. Well, listen, Scott, thank you very much for sharing uh, awesome, uh, interesting information. You know, thank you, Joel. This, this really turned into a little bit more of a sales discussion than, than I expected. Yeah, yeah. yeah and recruiting is sales, if you think about it. You're, you're, selling, you're selling the dream to other people about what your organization's all about. That's really what it is. Well, you know, the thing is that you're selling an intangible. 
I mean, you're selling a person, but you're really selling an intangible and intangible selling, which is really what I've done my whole career selling investments and different kinds of opportunities is really exactly, uh, you know, what you're doing. It's hard. Yep, absolutely right. So listen, man, thank you very much. Your contact information, your bio and things will be in the show notes. And if anybody wants to get a hold of Scott and talk about bringing in new people or finding people or whatever it is, I encourage you to connect with them. But in the meantime, thank you very much, Scott. Appreciate you being on with us. Thank you, Joel. Thank you for the opportunity. You're very welcome. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a giant thanks to my podcast producer, David Wolf, and his team at Podcast and Radio Networks. Profit from the inside simply wouldn't be what it is without David and his team. For more information or to learn how you can launch and produce your own podcast, reach out to podcastandradio.com. Produced by Audavita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.